Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So we're going to um, start exploring habits together. The Power of Habit, Part One. One way you can think of the Buddha's teaching is is from the, the standpoint of habits. It's all a teaching about habits. And the, the essence of that is right in the word that we use to talk about what we do all the time. How is your practice going? Oh, my practice is going okay. My practice isn't so good these days, whatever however you define that. But the word practice itself is pointing to what habits are you developing in your life, in your mind, in your speech, in your actions. We're in the habit game. Mm. And I've been, you know, one way or another, teaching about habits, and I get the benefit of keeping on reflecting on it as I'm opening up my mouth. So it's, it's a continual exploration in my in my my life for the past, you know, almost forty years now. Um, how habits get created, how they can get cultivated, how skillful ones can get cultivated and unskillful ones um, changed. The, the, really, the essence of, of the teachings um, is spoken about in terms of wise effort. We've talked about this many times. Four aspects of wise effort or right effort that is guarding against unwholesome habits and actions, abandoning unwholesome thoughts, words, or actions when they're here, um, cultivating wholesome habits, and increasing and strengthening them as you're developing them, both in the moment, cultivating wholesome thoughts, uh, wholesome mind states, and getting used to developing the wholesome, strengthening the wholesome and weakening the unwholesome. So this is all about what direction we're facing. As you might have heard me say before, one of the the basic teachings of the Buddha that sums it up so um, simply and clearly, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. That's how it works. Anybody have, have a problem with that? Whatever you frequently think and ponder upon, that's where your mind naturally goes. And where your mind goes, your mouth goes, and your body goes as well. Mind, speech, and body. Sometimes they call it it's the reverse, body, speech, and mind. I'm, I'm purifying body, speech, and mind. Or as... Um, as is often said, thought manifests as the word. Word manifests 
as the deed. Deed develops into habit. Habit hardens into character. So uh, watch the, the thoughts and its ways with care and let it spring from love out of concern for all beings. That if you come right back to where your motivation is and you can um, purify the mind and develop skillful thoughts of mind, then everything else will manifest from that. Sometimes when people hear a a right thought or wise thought as um, uh, one aspect of the Eightfold Path, the, the idea comes, oh, then I'll just stop all the unpleasant thoughts and have only nice thoughts. Good luck. Okay. That's part of the challenge. It's part of the, the, the uh, uh, interesting way that we're wired up. We have all these thoughts going through our, our mind. And if you know the secret of how to train the mind, then you don't have to get rid of anything. Is that just comes up and uh, works against you anyway. The more you try to get rid of thoughts or actions and you get frustrated by it and you're very um, aversive to it, you just give it life. But to see those thoughts just coming through and see how empty they are and not give them energy and the ones that inspire you that are more aligned with what your higher vision is to empower them so that you can actually bring them to life. We are creatures of habit. I I mentioned last week's talk when I talked about facing in the right direction, that famous uh, teaching from the Dhammapada, drop by drop under a a, uh, dripping faucet Each drop doesn't seem like much, but drop by drop, the bucket will get filled. What drops are you putting into the bucket? Healthy, skillful thoughts, words, actions, or unskillful ones. Not that you're bad for having unskillful thoughts. The word unskillful is basically defined as Thoughts that lead to suffering, either your own or others. Uh, and thoughts that lead to well-being and happiness are called skillful thoughts. So it's, uh, it's what drops you're putting in the bucket. <clears throat> now one would think that if you have the idea... Uh, oh, I want to create more well-being or happiness in my life. And here's the prescription, whether it's the Eightfold Path or some other uh, body of teachings or something that inspires you that you're connected with and saying, yes, this is going to lead to happiness or this is going to lead to suffering. Um, it would be you know, a relatively simple thing to do to choose for your greater well-being. And again, that's the, the mystery of this. Even if you've, you know better, there's that moment of choice where somehow you go against the path that will serve you. So fascinating this is. How we can go against ourselves and whether it's reaching for the third dessert you know, or lashing out at somebody that we care about and we, we know mm, if I open up my mouth there might be some fallout in this. But they deserve it, yeah. Uh, out it comes. And then there's a lot of cleaning up to do. And then afterwards, 
what was I thinking? How many times has that thought come to you? What was I thinking? It's, as, as the, the phrase goes, oh, I went against my better judgment. You know? It's really, you know, if you kind of tease that apart, to go against your better judgment, there's a part of you that knows, but somehow we, we aren't listening. <clears throat> so I want to talk a little bit, um, at least uh, what I've been starting to learn on a, a subtler level about uh, the power of habit. And uh, this book, The Power of Habit, the subtitle, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business, by Charles Duhigg, um, to explore why we do what we do and to actually practice um, this week and maybe the next couple of weeks. And I'm reminded, um, I, probably m- few of you were here when um, I first started the... Um, uh, to write about and uh, start groups on the Awakening Joy stuff. M- many years ago, this is oh, maybe about uh, yeah, 11 or 12 years ago, I um, started uh, this series of talks about applying Buddhist concepts of happiness as practices. And this group... It's kind of interesting. How many people were here during that time? Anybody remember that? Just a few. Wow. And it just kind of morphs into, oh, this is the new configuration of the Thursday night sangha. But we did it for about, oh, a few months, two or three months. said, okay, we're going to take this practice this week. Uh, gratitude. All right. uh, now we'll take this practice letting go or being kind to ourselves. And as we, as we did, and I said, you know, don't, don't just do this as a, uh, you know, being on the receiving end. Practice it. Let's see what happens when we really practice it. And what actually inspired me to, to do the, the course and start to, to teach it as a, as a course was uh, we all, just about all, um, got happier and happier over the course of a couple of months. I said, oh my goodness, this stuff is really working. So I I hope that uh, we can uh, make it an experiential exploration. So first, um, the habit loop, as it's described in this book, and as, uh, as the author talks about what neuroscience is finding out about habit. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the opening story, uh, which has uh, really been revolutionary in seeing how habits work, is about this fellow um, called, uh, named Eugene, Eugene Pauly. In the, uh, in the studies, he's just known as EP, but now he kind of, you know, they said this is what the guy's name was, who, um, I think this is around uh, 20 or 25 years ago or so, uh, had, uh, came down with viral encephalitis. And it destroyed um, the part of his brain uh, having to do with memory. Uh, partic- not just short-term memory, but uh, but most of his memory he could he knew who his wife was but he he didn't know his friends and uh, he didn't recognize names or faces and he'd carry on a conversation somebody would ask him um uh, some questions and then like you know 5 minutes later he would he would forget that they talked about it and he and he needed to hear the the uh the responses again, and uh, he'd go into this rap over and over. He said, oh gosh, you know, when he'd look at some new uh, techni- techno gadget, and he said, oh, in my day, uh, electronics were, uh, were much bigger machines, and blah, 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 and he'd go on this rap 
over and over and over. And so you kind of had to be very patient with him because he just, he didn't have any memory that he had just said it. Anyway, um, he, um, he and his wife moved to this uh, new place and uh, they, um, they wanted to, uh, uh, he was with some doctors who were curious about how he was orienting and he was part of a study on people who had similar situations and they were asking him um, to describe his house just in his mind. He didn't have the capacity to describe how he went from, you know, w- that the bedroom was near the bathroom and near the, near the next room. But somehow, he always knew where he was. He just couldn't remember how to explain it. He couldn't think it through. And what really started to, um, to become very interesting was his wife would take him around for a walk each each day, each morning, um, but she was warned, don't ever let him go by himself because if he goes out by himself, he'll never find his way back. One day, the door was open and he left and he walked. He started, he, he left and she didn't know and she saw the door was, gone, was open and he was gone and she completely, you know, got, you know, terrified, of course, went all over the neighborhood, went looking around for him, and by the time, and couldn't find him, by the time she got back home, there he was sitting in his, uh, in his uh, chair. And she couldn't believe that not only was he okay, but he found his way home. They started to follow him, and he went on exactly the same walk, looked exactly at the same bush, uh, uh, noticed this particular sign or waved it at the bird just over here. The whole walk was repeated over and over and over. And they said, how is that possible? He can't think his way through, but there's something that tells him how to get around. And then they started to... Um, see what his, uh, what his mind was capable of doing, how habits formed, not only with him, but they started to do some experiments also. They were doing experiments of rats in mazes and how they find their way around. And um, they noticed that his basal ganglia was taking him right around where he needed to go that that was very active, even though his neocortex and his, all his thinking mechanism was hardly able to operate. And then they, uh, a lot of studies were done looking at rats going for food in maize. And what they would find was that at the beginning, the rat was taking a, a, a while to get to the food. And getting a lot of information, all of the, um, I don't know if rats have intellects, but all of their uh, conceptual activity was, was going very, getting very active. And then finally, when they get the, uh, get the, uh, the reward, little by little, it became a shorter and shorter time until at some point, the rat didn't have to think at all and went right to the uh, right to the reward, and they started to notice the the brain function of the rats and noticed that at the very beginning, in the early stages, the rats' thinking was going on throughout the whole process, gathering information, mm, smelling here, mm, going here. Oh no, it's not there. Very very active. And then at the end, they, when the rat got its reward, there was you know, a, a peak experience. Ah, okay. As the, the rat continued to learn, what happened was when the very beginning, when the click would happen and the door would open, the rat had um, 
a high degree of activity, and then the brain was very, very low conceptual activity until the reward. So basically, the thinking process was shut off or was much, much lower while the routine that he had or she had practiced uh, was, uh, you know, while he was operating in that routine, just getting to the end of, of the maze. Basically, the rat wasn't thinking very much until it got to the reward. And when it got to the reward, the brain lit up again. And what they found was this is pretty much how it works in our habits that when we are first learning a habit, we're sorting out all the the conditions and the cues and, and are thinking our way through. And then as we practice it more and more and more, the brain has a natural way of um, minimizing its effort so that we, th- we are not thinking anymore. So actually, we can be involved in a lot of other activities while we're doing some very complex tasks, like, say, driving to work. Do you ever, or drive to, if you don't commute, some place that you go regularly, you ever have that experience, you get in the car, you turn it on, you know, and somehow, 20 minutes later, you're there, and your mind could have been on Mars, right? Because at that point, when you practice it enough, you're, you're, you're not needing to think at all. Well, that's good news if it's a good habit. Oh, you don't use a whole lot of extra energy. You could be watching your breath and be mindful during that time where you can do whatever. But if it's an unskillful habit, it's happening on its own not on the thinking level, on the basal ganglia, the, the most fundamental um, level, reptilian level in your brain, and it will take a lot of thought to go against that habit. And what they found is there's a few different elements, three different elements in the habit loop as as Duhigg calls it. There's a cue, like uh, the, for the rat, the door opening, and the rat knows, ah, I know there's going to be a pellet of food at the end. Yeah, okay. And then goes, and then there's a routine that is habituated, and then there's the reward. And at the reward, yeah, got it. And those three things, the cue, the routine, and the reward form what is known as the habit loop. Mm-hmm. And it says, let me just see, and I'll, I'll read a little bit from the book, let me get it right. Mm-hmm. This process in which the brain converts a sequence of actions into an automatic routine is known as chunking, and it's at the root of how habits form. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of behavioral chunks that we rely on every day. And then... Habits can be ignored, changed, or replaced... But the reason the discovery of the habit loop is so important is that it reveals a basic truth. When a habit emerges, the brain stops fully participating in decision-making. It stops working so hard and diverts focus to other tasks. So unless you deliberately fight a habit, unless you find new routines, the pattern will unfold automatically. Now there's 
one other element in this key to creating habits. And that is craving, which in Buddhist teachings is the second noble truth. The cause of all of our suffering is craving. He calls it craving in both a a good sense and a bad sense. Um, Talks about how we get motivated for some kind of reward. Uh, And he uses the example of uh, the father of modern advertising, this guy Claude Hopkins, that uh, all of Mad Men and uh, all the the advertising uh, world has based their principles on. Now they've developed it to a fine art and science. But this guy in uh, the early uh, uh, 20th century, he was responsible for um, Quaker Oats, Goodyear Tires, Bissell carpets, and he, this guy made so much money. He wrote a book, his autobiography. He, the problem was what, how he could spend so much money because he earned so much through advertising. And his big success was Pepsodent toothpaste. And it explains how this habit loop works that he could create a craving in people's minds. In the, uh, what is it? Before Pepsodent, and this was like in the 1930s or so, something like that, 7% of Americans used, had a tube of toothpaste. Mm. He created the toothpaste habit. Mm. And what he did, uh, Pepsodent came to him and said, you've been doing all these other, you know, and getting all these other uh, products um, so successful. We want, we want toothpaste to be a, a good habit. So he tried, uh, he read a whole lot of material on how toothpastes, uh, how tooth cleaning teeth works, and it was all very boring, all the research on why it's good for you, right? But um, he read, he came across one little thing that said, oh, there's a film that develops on your teeth every day, plaque, and that um, toothpaste or tooth powder can remove it. Also, apples can remove it, and a lot of other things can remove it. But he got the idea, if you can have a motivation that will really hook somebody into wanting to do a particular habit, then they'll, um, uh, they'll be possibly able to form a, a routine that they will, uh, they will keep, uh, keep doing. So he said, ah, he had this, this wise idea, mm, put your, take your tongue and move it across the te- your teeth and you'll notice there's a film there and if you can get rid of that film, you will be so much prettier and you will be so much more attractive. And so he said, just try it. Just mm, turn, put your tongue around your th- teeth. Well, you can do it right now. You know? And people could feel the film because the film was happening every day. And, but he appealed to people's vanity, not their health, he said, ah, you're going to be so much prettier. And then he got this, um, this campaign where a lot of people, I don't know how they seeded it, they did it in a, few, in a few towns and a lot of advertising, but it started to catch on that if you want to be pretty like these millions of people who've discovered the secret to real beauty, you'll use this toothpaste every day. And within, what was it? Within uh, like a decade or so, there was so everybody had pra- was was in the toothpaste habit so much so that by uh, the war the um, the army didn't have to convince soldiers to brush their teeth because 
everybody had been into the toothpaste uh, habit by that time. Even though it wasn't about getting your teeth cleaner, it was about getting them whiter or making them prettier. It wasn't about health, it was about about, uh, vanity. So the idea is if you can create a craving, a particular thing in the mind says, I want that, and match it with a cue, and then have a routine that will be motivating you to get the reward, you can get people to do most anything. So here's a few things that we can, um, we can do. Let's see if there's anything else I want to mention before we... Just some examples of how this gets activated by a cue, okay? Like, for instance, smokers, if they start seeing a pack of Marlboros, then that becomes the cue even before the smoking. So if you can connect a particular pleasant experience with a... um, with a stimulus, so that that becomes the cue rather than the act. And if you can hook that up with a reward at the end, you will instill a habit. So the thing is to to see, to overpower a habit, you have to recognize what the craving is that's driving the behavior. And this is where mindfulness is so Powerful, because with mindfulness, then you start to notice what is motivating your behavior. It's like you're bringing back your mental capacity in the the process, rather than being on, as they say, automatic pilot. And he says, in the golden rule of habits, you can't extinguish a bad habit. You can only change it. Once you have a habit created, when there's a stimulus, the mind will just go there automatically. Like, for instance, uh, if somebody has um, had an addiction, and if they've been maybe sober for 10 years, and they have one drink, boom, they go back into that habit pattern. So you need to replace the routine with a more skillful routine in order to change the habit. <clears throat> Suppose he talks about food as, a, as an example. Sometimes people eat not because they're hungry. Well, let me ask you. If you find yourself nibbling on something... Um, and you don't know how you got there. <laughs> what, what do you think, the, besides the cue of seeing food, what, does food, what craving might it be addressing? What motivates you to, uh, to go for some food when you're not even hungry? Just think. There might be a few different possibilities. What's that? Loneliness. Okay, excellent. So that's, that's one. Loneliness. Good. Yes. Okay, right. To distract ourselves. Right. Excellent. Boredom. Yeah, exactly. These are the th- exactly the things that he talks about too. Okay, so almost like the loneliness, but some kind of nourishment. Yes. Avoid pain. Yeah. So with all of these, the thing is, if you can see where the craving is, what's the source of the craving, then you're not under its power because at some point you're not even aware of what the craving is. But the habit becomes so automatic, and especially if 
in past times when you've been feeling lonely or bored or wanting to procrastinate, food has been a good distraction. It's so automatic that you don't realize the motivation is boredom or loneliness or whatever, needing, needing love. But if you can notice it, you can break the cycle of that craving and replace it with a more skillful habit. So for instance, suppose you're um, you're bored and you realize as you're reaching for the for the snack, oh, I'm bored right now. What might be a substitute activity? A walk. Okay, excellent. Yeah. Anything else? What was that? Reading. Reading or music. Okay, yeah. Or singing or something. Sometimes we do need a break. You know, it's not like we can go 24-7 or just continuously, okay, I've got to plow through. Sometimes, oh, I need to refresh myself here. And if the only option that you know is going to the refrigerator, that'll be where you go. But if it's, oh, what can I do that will address this boredom or needing to refresh myself that's healthy and replace that, then the cue, say, of boredom or the craving of boredom or the cue that maybe there's food there mm, and then there's the, the getting in touch with the craving, oh, I'm bored right now. And then the reward, what would the reward be that as, as, which would be different, say, than the, the food? Feeling good, yeah where you say, oh, wow, I'm choosing a way that's really healthy for me. That might be one reward. He talks about a number of different rewards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, f- the feeling of uh, the, the sweet quality of helps you avoid the pain, physical pain. So what would, say, what would another an alternative reward be? Say if you did go for a walk or... What did you say? Endorphins. Okay, so you might have some endorphins going and that makes you feel good. Or you see some some beauty and get moved or inspired, right? So the key is to identify the cue, notice the craving, and have a reward that really is um, is satisfying and is healthy. Particularly under stress, by the way, that when we're stressed, as is probably not surprising we're even less able to track our experience and we fall into habits. The mind gets contracted and we just go into the the default. It also takes, he talks about, it takes an intention. Uh, It takes a kind of decision that you're going to be trying something new and a belief, an actual belief that you can change it. <clears throat> so, I think I, just in the interest of time, I want to stop here and give you a chance. Let's just practice a little bit from the little that, I, that I've shared, uh, kind of simplifying this whole process, but it's probably enough to explore. Just, uh, I invite you to uh, close your eyes for a moment and um, think of some good habit in your life something that you do that really serves you. If you can't think of anything, then you know, there's always brushing your teeth if you, if you do that. You know. But something that you do that, yeah, feels, 
feels pretty good. And as you just notice the process, um, first get in touch with what the cue is that starts you on the habit. Like for instance, um, for some, when they wake up and they have the habit of, oh, I'm going to meditate uh, now. And it's their routine. Oh, wake up, I'm going to meditate. Or it might be, uh, come home from work, oh, I go now for my healthy walk. Just what gives you the cue that this is the time to do this, this routine? And then as you get in touch with that cue, just uh, as you reflect on the actual activity of the routine, this, it's probably a, a healthy one if it's a healthy habit. And then what's the reward? What makes you keep coming back besides the fact that you've trained yourself by, the, by now? What's the payoff? And so you can see that good habits are strongly ingrained if we practice them enough. Okay, that's the good news. And now... uh, Reflect on, say, some habit that you have that's not so skillful. Whether it's um, a way that you interact with someone or a particular uh, behavior that you'd like to kind of work on. And first get in touch, what's the cue that triggers a particular response? Like we just said, maybe boredom or whatever. The way you have somebody in your mind. What's the cue? And just track the whole thing. What's the routine, the habitual behavior that you find yourself in? No judgment here. Just track it all. Track it with a lot of kindness and compassion. And what's the reward? Because there's a payoff somewhere. What's the reward? Might be a temporary release of tension or feeling empowered or whatever. Just be really honest with yourself. What's the, the reward, the payoff Now, say you were to pick this particular behavior as something that you worked on. What, how could the cue lead to a different routine that would serve you more, that would still give you that reward? Because it's replacing the unskillful routine with a routine that would still end up with that same reward. What might it look like?
And imagine that you can learn a new way. Because belief is a part of this. You might even see yourself trying it a new way just for the next few days as an experiment, as a practice. And if it seems like too big a habit to, to change, then you might have a, you know, a more modest one. Now, next week when we come back, we'll explore a little bit about how things went, and maybe we'll have some uh, some interactive exercises. Um, but uh, let's just take a few moments to see if there's any questions, comments, um, something all the way in the back. And let's see if you can pass. Oh, thanks, Andrew. Oh, it's Liz. Yeah. Um, I like the idea of trying to divert myself or break bad habits. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm hoping we'll spend some time, as opposed to that, just simply creating good habits for the sake of creating good habits. When you first said, think of a good habit mm-hmm. you want to cultivate, well, one thing that came to mind right away is practicing piano. And not as in antithesis to eating mm-hmm, cookies, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm, just in its own right. Mm-hmm. So I hope we'll, we'll spend some yeah. time just focusing that way. A g- good, uh, good point. And uh, you can, this week, either take a good habit that you want to develop or a bad habit that, uh, that you want to work on. Either way is fine. If you can develop something that you've been wanting to, to, uh, to get into your routine, that's just as good. Thank you. Anything else came up from that? Any reflection? I mean, once, yeah. Um, I was noticing, no big surprise here, mindfulness is very helpful that when I, I have a I would say an addictive personality that I have gone through a lot of addictive processes. Mm -hmm. And what's helpful to me is really noticing what the consequence is Mm -hmm. in great detail. And that motivates me to not do bad habits. Mm -hmm. And it's sometimes not obvious what, what the downside is. Yeah, well, just like we're saying, you can know, you can be motivated, but still, you've got to bring the the thought process back into the middle of the routine when the brain is kind of shutting off, and that's where mindfulness is is so key, because you're waking up when you're usually falling asleep as you're going through it. So, yeah, you can be, the motivation is definitely crucial, but it's while you're in that sleeping mode that you've got to kind of keep track of it. So, and uh, just to, uh, to follow up on what Liz was saying, that if you're cultivating, say, a skillful habit, at the beginning, remember, you've got to, really get all the information and practice and seeing, oh, this is how it works, this is how it works, oh, this is how good it feels. This is one of the basic principles that I, I want to convey in the joy course, that when you do something that's skillful, 
notice how good it feels. That if you're really present for how good it feels, that becomes your reward. Instead of, okay, I did it the way I'm supposed to. It's like, oh, yeah, this feels so aligned. Oh, this feels so nourishing. Not to miss the nourishment of the reward. So, anything before we, before we go? Okay, so we'll, we'll close with a short loving kindness. And uh, this week, just play around with this. I, I hope you do come up with, uh, if, you, if you didn't just now, come up with either some skillful habit that you want to cultivate and, or unskillful that uh, you want to experiment with. And remember, drop by drop, every single time you do it a skillful way, um, focus on that, on how good it feels. Don't focus on the times that you blow it and say, oh, who was I kidding? That's not going to really do it. You've got to keep on noticing the reward and as much as possible be compassionate when you've seen you've fallen asleep again in the middle of that, uh, that whole routine. So just sending some kindness towards yourself. May I wake up to all of my habits, skillful and unskillful. May I choose ways that nourish me. May I be compassionate when I forget. And then to wish well to yourself and to all beings. May all see their goodness and share their love well. Wake up to their true nature. And may our coming here together be for the benefit of all beings. Good luck. (laughs) See you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.